all you hardcore boxing fans out there, how are you doing? It's Ari the Spastic here, live from his bedroom. Today I'm joined by Julian McGowan from Leeds. Is it Leeds, Julian? Uh, Leeds area from Dewsbury. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, how are you doing? I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. Uh, watched a bit of the bit of the action last night. I didn't watch it all, um, but I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. I'm just glad it's the weekend. Uh, you you won't you won't have seen the B to B fight against Brown, will you? I saw the highlights. Um, the one thing that I did notice about that fight, I know Styles make fights, but. Um, if you're going to fight a southpaw, that's how you do it. You know, he's, he's such a strong guy, isn't he? So I probably saw five minutes highlights and I'll sit down at some point and catch up on it. But he, he knew how to approach a southpaw. Perfect feet positioning, left left foot outside the right foot, right hand straight down the middle. And he's, he's just a beast, isn't he? I mean, it was a, it was a nasty cut, though. That was horrible. B2B mm. uh, had a bad one in the middle of his forehead, didn't he? Yeah, it was it was like Decker Heggie's what he had with Danny Christie the other week, wasn't it? It was like a seriously like bad cut, but it, it just shows, doesn't it? But he, he looked to dominate from what, you know, from what I saw. And uh, he's one of those, isn't he? He's just so physically strong and so tough. He doesn't do anything spectacular. He's not a stylist. He's never going to be accused you know, being a John Conte type fighter, but is just massively successful. It'll, it'll take some containing at, you know, 12 and a half stone. He, uh, he had, he had uh, Bob Ashes, I thought, Bob Ashes, is he Leeds lad from Perspire? Leeds lad, yeah, Bob, yeah. And they had big pillar gloves on and they were lifting him off the floor, I've been told, or somebody at Ingalls in. It were lifting Bob or off the floor with body shots, uppercut body shots, lifting him off the floor, mate. You could just see though, can't you? I mean, I, I, I catch obviously I watch the boxing, but you see a lot of these Eastern Europeans as well in these underground fight leagues and things on on YouTube. I'm not glamorizing that, by the way. I'm just making a point. But they're so tough, the bread's so tough, and they're not spoiled or mollycoddled like a lot of our. Um, fighters coming through. I mean, what's B2B have had now? He's at 18 fights and it might be 17, 18 fights. And, and look at his accomplishments. I know he had a big amateur pedigree, but if you just look at his accomplishments in such a short period of fights, he's just un unbelievable. You know, he's, he's unbelievable. 17 and 0, isn't he? I think 17 knockouts. Yeah. 17 and 0, and he's a unified champion. He's just walking through people. He's had a little bit of inactivity. I think it was something down to uh, contractual issues. But just generally, that's that's what I like to see. I like to see an active champion who will effectively fight anybody. He's not bothered. He'll, he'll fight anyone at all. And uh, I don't see him having any competition um, at the moment. And you can see why some of the, the favourites will avoid him. You know, some of the... the did anyone else go at it in Olympics? Yeah, I think they did, didn't they? Um, that was a close fight, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's that pedigree, isn't it? They're just these guys have hundreds of fights at that level. They just become hardened, and they're, they're also, you know, whilst I said he might not be, you know, mistaken for John Conte, he's very technical as well. These guys aren't just walk forward swinging shots like we saw last night. And we'll obviously talk about that shortly with Chisora, but they, these are quite technical fighters. They know the way around a ring. And they absolutely know how to cut the ring off. And I think he just broke Brown's heart, ultimately. 
But I've not seen all of his fights, but I've enjoyed watching him. You know, when we did that video yesterday that's on members area now, uh, I've had some emails of people saying that's the best breakdown, best video that I've ever done on members area regarding oh, wow. how we spoke about training and stuff like that. Do you feel that these Eastern European fighters, they get a bit of a raw deal from people saying yeah, they're all upright and they ain't got, they're not very technical on that. But when I look at people like Kovalev, Beef, Golovkin, Bivol, they all look to me like they don't get beat. Or obviously, they have, some of them have been beat, but at yeah. one point they were just running through everybody, weren't they? They have great coaching staff. You know, the, a lot of these Eastern European camps, the, the very knowledgeable coaches, you just don't hear lots about them because they're not championed like ours are in the UK or some of the more celebrated ones in the US. But their coaching staff's really, really high level. Um, they do a lot of modern work as well. I understand all that, but I, I it's one of those, isn't it? You, you, if, you have, if you have the eye, and I don't mean to sound conceited, I'm really humbled by what your guys have said on the, on the members channel, but if you have the, the eye, you see certain things, like I saw certain things last night, and we can obviously touch on that shortly, but I saw certain things last night, while Parker, for example, adjusted, and that was down to the coach, and that was down to Andy Lee implementing some brilliant things. And... In, in Eastern Europe, they've just always had that, from the 70s and 80s and 90s, they've always had such fantastic amateurs coming through. And obviously a lot of those Eastern Bloc countries couldn't turn professional kind of, you know, in the, in the mid 80s, 90s, etc. But they've always had very, very solid fighters. The Germans have very solid fighters. You know, the Ukrainians at the moment, just incredible. And I love watching them. And as I've said, I just, the way he broke it down, the way he just was, it, I know he's your, your mate, but the way he positioned his left foot, and I'll keep repeating that, there's certain things that you have to do against a southpaw, but it depends on the southpaw. You've got a right-handed southpaw, so a guy who's, who, who favours the right hook, and then you've got the left-handed southpaw, so obviously his backhand's his power shot. But just the way that he was closing Brown down was so clever. It was dropping his height, it was pushing forward, it was stepping the left foot outside the southpaw front foot and throwing the right hand down the middle. And when you step that left foot outside the right and you throw that right hand down the middle and you almost like slip to the left as you throw it, you're outside that line of fire. And that might be to the untrained eye, it might be just look like a right hand, what scores from B to B. And that's not, that's something that he's practiced and practiced and practiced. Um, hundreds of amateur fights. They're in the gym all the time. And I, I thought it was brilliant to watch. I, I love watching that stuff when it just looks like he's throwing a right hand. But you know, as a coach, having spent hours and hours and hours in years and years in gyms watching that stuff, you think that's it. That's high level stuff. That's high level technical stuff. And as I said last night on the members channel, I'm not really seeing that type of thing and that type of coaching coming through in the UK. Yeah, and do you think that's worrying moving forward, Julian? I don't know if it's massively worrying as such, Russell, because I do sometimes wonder. We, we talked about the entry level into professional boxing. The entry level for boxers, coaches, officials is low. There's, there's no entry level. Anybody can get involved. And whilst we still have some formidable champions and some fantastic champions out there, I do wonder if the, the elite level now has dropped somewhat in the last 20, 30 years. I think a lot of people now are going into different sports. Boxing, whilst when it's on its A game, we still have the big shows and we still have the big name fighters, but 
you, you know, you always hear me talk about this, but to answer your question, it's worrying in terms of the bar has probably dropped slightly. You know, I don't, I don't see that many fights that are really what I would class as a really high level fight. I always think of um, Wilfred Gomez against Luke Pinto and I think it was 1983. And if anybody's never seen that fight, never mind what year it's from, you want to watch Luke Pinto against Wilfred Gomez and you're probably going to see one of the highest level for excitement, for skill, heart, guts, punch output you've ever seen in your life. It's one of those fights that went under the radar and I'm not seeing that type of level fighter out there. We have Lomachenko, who I watched recently against Comey. Uh, he's doing things that nobody else is doing. Still un an unbelievable talent. But I we seem to have gone now to a situation where we have, we have fewer Tank Davises. So Tank Davis, um, his skill level is just, again, it's unbelievable. But now it seems a lot more about the fitness and the strength and whatever they're putting into the bodies, you can question that. And it, it almost becomes a war of attrition now because the, the stylists and the, those fighters that can do everything, they're not always mainstream either. And it's not always what people want to watch. I mean, if you look at, I mean, now as a critic of uh, Vladimir Klitschko, if you look at Vladimir Klitschko, once he teamed up with Manny Stewart and how he almost redesigned his style to become a, a risk-averse style, Emmanuel, you know, Emmanuel Stewart and Vlad Klitschko, they created this team, whereas it was brilliant. Technically, it was brilliant, but it didn't result in good fights, did it? It didn't result in exciting fights. So I, I do wonder if that teaching's out there, if the, if the real teachers of boxing are out there at the moment. I'm not saying there aren't great boxers. I, I just do wonder if it's as prominent as it used to be. And I think the answer would be no. Um, and whilst Tyson Fury is considered by myself and by, by most of us really to be the best heavyweight in the world, I think there's a little bit too much um, waxing lyrical about his level of ability and his level of skills. When I watch, you know, some of the, for example, a Riddick Bow. Riddick Bow was an unsung, you know, heavyweight um, generally. And if I look at Riddick Bow's skill level and what he could do versus Tyson Fury's skill level, I see no comparison whatsoever, but I'm sure history will show Tyson Fury to be a greater fighter than Riddick Bo. But technically, he can't do the things that Riddick Bo did. So that's, I know I've gone on a little bit there, but that's just a, an example of, um, it's a long answer to a, a really open question you've asked me. It's worrying if you're, okay, I'll, I'll simplify it. Sorry, sorry guys. It's worrying if you're a real connoisseur of the art and skill and craft of boxing. If you just want to see a good fight and good action, who cares? Yeah. Yeah, interesting breakdown, that. But, uh, but yeah, Beater Beef, uh, he's best everywhere in the world at the moment, and we are a shadow of a doubt. Like, like so. sorry, like yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, I don't think there's any talk about moving up. I would hate for him to move up, by the way. You can see his frames. His frames are like... <coughs> Well, he's not big enough to move. Up. Yeah, he's been a world champion over four years. He's 36 year old, 17 and 0, and 17 by way of KO. Brutal, brutal. The only thing that will beat him will be father time, won't it? He'll get yeah. to a, a stage a little bit like Golovkin, really. Um, you know, Golovkin obviously lost the second fight to Alvarez, but I think there was an <coughs> element of 
it was 34, 35 years old. And 40 now, was well, it, Ofkin? 40? Exactly. He's, he's, he's kind of got the grey hairs and stuff, hasn't he? So it generally, it's father time that beats these guys. And I think B2B will be the same thing. That at some point, a young kid will come along who's got great reflexes and good movement. And he'll just, he'll just keep away from him for 12 rounds. But right now, I don't think anybody can push him. Oh, Golovkin. I'm sorry, B2B. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, Golovkin's faded now, isn't he? He'll just get a cash-out fight. But I don't think anybody will, will beat him. It's just one of those things. It's some fighters, because of their style, they're able to add longevity to their careers, like a Bernard Hopkins or a Floyd Mayweather, because they've got that brilliant defensive style. But a guy like B2B is just like, they have a window where they'll be in their prime. And then as soon as the reflex is going... They don't have a great deal else in the tool. You like tool Joshua, kit. isn't it, really? Yeah, Joshua's got a window now, hasn't he? And uh, it's not a Joshua bashing thing. I really can't see where Joshua's going. Um, he's certainly not going to get better technically. I don't care which coach he goes with. He might, he might get 1% or 2% better technically over the next year or so. But fighting once a flood and running around different trainers, it's not going to happen, is it? And taking... If he does take the rematch with um, Usyk, that's that's going to end the career. That's going to finish him. But yet, nobody's prepared now to step down a level, are they? It's a little bit too late to say, he's a working pro. He's still got the L plates on. Well, he's, he's approaching his mid-30s now. What is he, 33 or something like that? Um, yeah. 32, 33. He's, he's approaching his mid-30s. He's got two bad losses on the record, so he's not getting any better. And if anything, you'll see a you'll see a decline now. Yeah, the the word is that him and McCracken have gone separate ways. That's the word doing the rounds. Yeah, I think um, if I was McCracken, I'd probably do the same thing. I'd say, listen, I can only work with what I can work with. Um, he's a busy man as well, is Rob McCracken, and from people you speak to, he has a lot of integrity, and it, I don't think anybody has much bad to say about McCracken in boxing. And I would be like, well, listen, if you think a better coach, a new coach, not better, if you think a different coach is going to bring different things to the table, you fill your boots, shake hands, good luck to you. And what we'll see is like we saw with Chisora, Mark 6, Mark 7, Mark 8, we'll see uh, an Anthony Joshua, Mark 3, and let's see if he's improved. Won't happen. Go to Adam Booth, the Dark Lord, he's the best. <laughs> Yeah, what would, what would Adam Booth be able to do for um, Anthony Joshua? It's that, that style wouldn't fit Adam Booth's um, coaching philosophy, would it? I, I don't know where I don't know where you'd start with Joshua now. I, I genuinely don't. Um, what did you think to Ben Davidson coming out on social media saying I'll train AJ? I didn't see it because I, I, I tend to keep away from a lot of the social media because I, it grates me. It just it grates you, does it? <laughs> It just gets on my nerves, mate. It's like, it's, you know, I've coached. I believe I'm a, a good coach. I've worked with good kids. I've worked with kids who are average. And I've worked with kids with losing records in the amateurs and taking them to national titles. I like to think I can work with most fighters, but I don't put myself out there as being the best. But ultimately, the, the role of the coach, whilst important and the strategy is important, it's all really to do with the fighter. It's to do with the fight. And you, you're not going to give Anthony Joshua tools within a six-month period to be able to beat an Usyk or, or a Tyson Fury. 
It's not going to happen in a million years. It just doesn't happen like that. I always like to think with a coach, a really good coach with a good combination with a certain fighter might give that fighter 20, 15, 20% improvement throughout a five, six year period. That's all the improvement is going to bring. And then if you get a really good fighter and, you, and he gets a new coach, um, that coach might only add one or 2%. I mean, at the highest level, that one or 2% might be enough to in a close fight. But if you think, if you listen to some of the coaches, you'd think they're going to reinvent the boxer, wouldn't you? They'll say, oh, I'm this coach. I, I can, you know, I can turn water into wine and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a miracle worker. I'm going to do this fantastic reinvention job. And we saw it with McGuigan, didn't we, talking about Daniel Dubois saying, you know, I'm going to strip him right down. And in six months, he's going to be an absolute beast. He'll be able to beat anybody in the world. And I think you, you've either got a massive ego or you're delusional, or you are kind of overstating your role. If you can bring a five or ten percent improvement over two, three years, you've been a good coach and you've done a good job. But when they talk about reinventing people, how often do we see fighters really reinvented under a? If you you look at Josh Taylor, you know he moved from from Shane to you know to, to, to Ben. Josh Taylor's a phenomenal fighter. Josh Taylor was a brilliant amateur. He was doing this stuff in the amateurs. It was just unbelievable. You could see in Josh Taylor's early fights on, might have been Channel 5, everything was there. He just needed a few little tweaks. He needed to get around to the, get used to the 8 and 10 and 12 round distance. But Josh Taylor was always going to be a special fighter. Let's not make claims that we created Josh Taylor in a laboratory and we are the reason for his success. Because it's just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's just... I understand a great racehorse needs a great jockey on its back. I get that. But I just often feel that the role of the coach is understated. You know, I've had boxers who have gone out there and I've done the work in the gym with them. You do your work in the corner. But I often, like with Gary Sykes, you just, you just take a deep breath and you just watch him do his stuff a lot of the time. You know, you might give him a little bit of feedback in between rounds, but he'll just go out there and he'll do his stuff because he's they're a special kid, they were a special kid. You know, Ray Leonard needed a motivator, but Ray Leonard was such a phenomenal, unbelievable talent. Ray Leonard would have been successful with probably most coaches, I believe. I think he was just such a special fighter. So all the coaches out there, you do a great job, but ultimately the, the, most of this is down to the fighter and it's down to how good that fighter is. And if he gets in the hit on the chin... He can either take it or he can't. It's as simple as that. The coaching is I think a lot on its luck, mate, uh, Julian, because Ingalls have had that gym up there 40 odd years, but they've only had five world champions, or is it four from scratch, haven't they? But Nazim, Johnny Nelson, Galahad, Kelbrook, who's the other one? Witter want there from the beginning, Murray. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure with Junior um, if he was or not he might not have been he might have been from Bradford Police Bradford Police yeah he was from Bradford Police Boys or something like that he might have been it, it is it's also a numbers game a friend of mine who's a solicitor actually who's a former professional fighter he says the same thing he said it's a numbers game you know I, I boxed for Keith Keith and Matt Tate they had a lot of national champions with thousands of kids through that gym some of them become champions and some of them don't if you only work with two or three kids, like I did, then the chances are you're going to have less champions because you, 
you, you work in for different reasons. Some guys are like loads of fighters in the gym because they want the money, they want the subs. Some do it because it's an income and others do it because there's not a lot of other gyms in the area. There's lots of reasons to do it, but but generally it is a, it is a numbers game. Some coaches, Brendan Ingle was a, a great mentor as well to, to, to fighters. Um, I think psychologically it would, it would build these fighters up, you know, who lacked confidence and things. I always look at the job he did with Johnny Nelson. You know, Johnny Nelson had no confidence and Johnny Nelson would be the first person to tell you he was bloody dire. I think he, he had 16 amateur fights and won three. He lost his first three professional fights and he was put on the hard road and he kind of like, Brendan kept believing him and there was a bit of tough love there, I'm sure. So he's a, Johnny, Johnny Nelson is probably one of the lesser examples of a fighter who didn't have great basics, didn't have great confidence and the coach did a fantastic job with him. Um, in terms of Nazim Hamad, he probably was the opposite. You could see Naz from being a schoolboy, couldn't you, when he was, and when you watched him eight, eight, nine, ten years old on the bag and stuff. So he was just a natural. He was just somebody who was probably going to win, be a successful anywhere. It's just that the Ingalls style at the time, you know, probably worked for Naz. So you, you see what I'm saying? It's some, some coaches and some styles work and the, the numbers game, they'll get people out there and others some fighters will just be able to go anywhere. I think I think Ray Leonard would have been able to go anywhere. I think Marvin Hagler was tough as tough as Teak. Um, it's it's just the relationship. It's like a tipping scale. It's the relationship between the gym environment, who you're around with, the time, a bit of luck, a good coach, a little bit of everything, and then you sometimes get that that fighter who breaks through. But it's not just to the, it's not just down to the coach. You know, well, and let's let's you know. I'm not rubbishing Shane McGuigan, by the way. He's clearly a good coach. See the things he does. He knows he knows his stuff. But let's see what Daniel Dubois does. Let's see if he is a reincarnation. You know, and he either comes out as Sonny Liston or Ali. Let Let's see if he is a reincarnation, or let's see if he's just the same fighter uh, doing the same thing once he steps up. And I suspect it'll be the latter. I think he's a bit of a dummy myself. Have you heard him talk? Yeah, he's uh, he? yeah, he's, he's not the most charismatic, is he? And that's obviously not, uh, it's not down, it's not his fault, really. It's not down to him. But you do sometimes need a bit of something about you, don't you? And you know, about we, you. I know, I know it's the ones who, and I always, I always think the same about um, Joe Joyce, actually. I always worry about where his career is going because Joe Joyce is a quiet, humble guy, isn't he? He minds his own business. And what is he now? 36 years old. And there's still no talk of activity or world title fights. And it's just, again, it, it proves what we've said, doesn't it? It's a, it's a popularity contest. And that's the one thing, whether I love them or not, that the matchroom tend to do a lot better than Queensbury is they tend to give fighters personalities and profiles. Well, it's they did it with Stoker, didn't they? Yeah, the brilliant eye, you know. Yeah, the snooker that turned them into superheroes. Oh. Yeah, the, the ring. Yeah, the darts, the big ring walks, and the the they made effectively one-dimensional people into these three-dimensional charismatic personalities. And like Dennis Taylor. I mean, he's a snooker. I do know a bit about snooker and pool. And Dennis Taylor, I've I've been at exhibitions and I've seen him play, and I thought he ain't that much. 
he's a percentage player. They might get in and make a 40 or a 50, then they're going to go safe. Whereas you Alex Higgins and Jimmy White yeah. might play a flare shot and then they might run out of position. Then they've got to play an even bigger flare shot to get back into position and they will go for it, same as O'Sullivan does, although he's got the cue ball on a string when I see him play most of the time. But Dennis Taylor, no, I've made 40. That cue ball's going to bulk, cushion or behind them three colours at the bottom. And that's not playing for fans. So, exactly. But, and, and who wants to watch that? Nobody wants to well, play for that. Yeah, well, let's look at, uh, you know, Rigindale, you know, um, technically one of the best fighters you'll ever watch, you know, yeah. Olympic, double Olympic champion, world amateur champion, you know, bantamweight champion, blah, 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 blah. Such a fantastic fighter, but it couldn't draw flies to a dump, could it? It just, who wanted to see Rigandau? And then you got to a stage then, the well, they sold him out, didn't they? They moved him up a couple of weight divisions against Lomachenko. It wasn't big enough because nobody had any interest in watching this guy. And then he's just faded away, hasn't he? I've never, I've not heard much about him since. And yeah. people don't want to see that. And that's why the, one of the questions you asked me a short while ago is, you know, is, is it a concern? And, I'm, and my view is that really high profile skill level in boxing is not as appreciated now. And it's not needed as much now. Um, when you're filling out arenas and you're getting like the, the heavyweights we had last night, which was a, it, as I mentioned on the members area last night, we had Joseph Parker, who was probably the ninth or tenth best heavyweight in the world against Chisora, who was probably the 15th or 16th best heavyweight in the world. And that's debatable. Who cares? Because there's a big hype build up. They've got celebrity trainers. You've got the pushing and the shoving. And people prefer to see that now. Um, it's WWE stuff, isn't it? It's soap opera stuff. And that's what people want because people said, you know what? It is entertainment after all. I don't want to see Rigandale. Um, I'm not interested in seeing like the, the forgotten story of the last 20 years, Ricardo Lopez, who was just a, an absolute maestro at straw weight. Like, oh, forget his record. He went 43, 44 unbeaten. Nobody was interested in him. Nobody cares about the purity. What do you think about Eddie coming out saying Derek Chisora may have 12 losses, but he's engaging and and, and people want to see him because they don't know what's going to happen next. But we'll go on to that fight now. We might as well. What, well what, what do you think to them comments and where Chisora goes now and his performance last night and his whole career? What, what do you think about it? Well, Chisora's lost his nine lives, and we had Eddie Hearn. And it, well, yeah, exactly. He's lost them. He's lost them a while ago. He's got to scrape them up, up off the road now, haven't you, to get, get him in a ring. And, you know, we had Eddie Hearn and Dave Caldwell. And it's not a criticism. These guys have got to fill stadiums, got to earn money in different kind of areas. But they both said, um, the common commentator said, Costello said, as we're doing the ring walks, both Dave Caldwell and Eddie Hearn have said, if he loses tonight, there are no more meaningful fights for Derek Chisora. Well, let's see if that's true, because I think I've heard that before. So for whatever reason, people like Chisora, I think it's because he's honest. And when I say he's honest, I'm talking about his performance. You know, he gets in there and he'll, he'll, he'll have a go. They also like the, the antics outside. It's quite sullen. Sullen fighters, unpredictable fighters, tend to go down well. I'm not sure about doing musical chairs, but each to his own. Um, 
but people identify with Chisora because he's a caricature. He's just a big character. It doesn't, you know, the UFC did that quite well. They had certain characters like Ken Shamrock and Tito Ortiz in the early days. These guys could have so many losses on their record and they would instantly get you to forget about them being sparked in previous fights just by focusing on the personality, focusing on the, the pushing and shoving and the threats and all this social media side of it. And they've done such a great job with Chisora doing that. Um, can can they bring him back? They're, they're shameless. They'll always bring him back. But for me, the most worrying part of that fight was Derek Chisora's legs. Um, I did wonder at some point if I said to you last night, I said, I think my boxing intelligence says that Parker wins, but my boxing instinct says that Chisora might scrape out a decision. And I wondered that purely because they might try and feed us with a trilogy. Um, but the most worrying part for me was Chisora's legs. From the third round, he got hit and his legs never quite recovered. His legs were quite stiff. When fighters' legs go stiff, especially when the front leg, the left leg goes stiff, and they tend to drag it as opposed to step it. The brain's not fully engaging with the feet to tell them, you know, to move it with any kind of fluidity. And I was really worried. And you could see halfway through the third when he got nailed, his eyes never recovered. From that third round, I'd be amazed if Derek Chisora can remember anything about that fight. He might say he can, but his legs and his eyes were gone. Now that for me is when a corner needs to start looking at fire. You need to start looking at fire and say, okay, are you responding to me? Are you engaging to me? And it became quite clear, obviously he just suffered a heavy knockdown in the fourth round. And it became quite clear that his legs were never in, never underneath him at all. Really, really concerning. Um, and I, I was I was worried about his health. For the he probably doesn't care about me being worried about his health. He say, "Who are you?" That's fair enough. He's a millionaire. I'm not. But you got to be able to enjoy that money, Derek, when you're in your fifties and sixties. And right now, I'm seeing a fighter who's shot. I'm seeing a fighter who's not been able to recover from shots early on, and he's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. Honestly, it's going to really damage him. What did you think to Eddie Earn's comments and Tyson Fury's comments after the Caballel fight four years ago and he lost basically nearly every round in that fight and they were saying he's shot, he's gone, he's had it and all that then. And, for, well, he's had how many good hidings has he had since then? He's had four, hasn't he? Four losses yeah, since then and, and X amount of fights. Yeah, they try to come across as uh, concerned, don't they? But they, they don't care. It's like Dave Allen, isn't it? Eddie Earn was saying it's probably the right thing that Dave Allen is done with boxing. His heart's not in it. He's getting hurt, etc. They don't care because all you have to do is come back with a couple of wins or do some things to keep you relevant to the fans. And it just doesn't matter because if we really, truly cared about boxers, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having boxing as a sport, would we? Well, <laughs> that's why Eddie feels bad about putting him in with Babbitt, but they've had talks because I've heard back. So, but what happened to Eddie saying that I think it's time Dave does go and retire, but now he wants to bring him back for Babic. Well, what, what always strikes me, Russell, is Eddie Hearn and other promoters, I'm not just focusing on Eddie Hearn, they're concerned about a fighter's well-being and, and health when they've got lots of other fighters coming through and they're able to fill cards. Suddenly when some of their world champions get beaten, get turned over and there's a bit of a kind of, 
blackout in terms of rising stars coming through and there's not many exciting fights to make, suddenly they bring them back, don't they? They start to say, let's bring them back. Now, I remember um, a friend of mine, um, Ben Doughty, he's not everybody's cup of tea, but I, I, I've known Ben, I've met him once in person, but I've known him quite a few years. We exchanged views on boxing. Now, he interviewed Eddie Hearn a few years ago, going back to fight has been absolutely shot to shit. And I said at the time that I said Tony Bellew would beat David Hay and everybody thought I was crazy. And I could see David Hay was absolutely shot to shit. Even when he knocked those two punch bags out in the first and second round, said David Hay's legs have gone, his, his legs have gone, his coordination's gone. And the, the biggest sign for me when a fighter's shot to bits is to push the punches. Now, Ben Doughty, mate of mine, was doing a little garden interview. It's when they want the punches, push them or rush them. When, the push, when a boxer pushes his punch like that, Instead of snapping the shots and being really loose, they have to force and push the punches. I remember when Larry Holmes lost to Michael Spinks, he said the same thing. He says, he was pushing his shots. He says, and when the target's there, you've got to force, you've got to, your brain's got to tell you to throw the shot as opposed to the, just the, re the reaction. Fighters, as I've said before, fighters are reactive. So when fighters react with counter shots or they see a target, the hand moves before the brain's actually engaging, telling them to throw the shot. But what happens is when fighters get older, they have to, the brain has to tell the shot to go as opposed to the reaction, just letting the shot go on its own. Not so that, you mean it's not instinctive? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. You've summarized it's like a footballer, isn't it? When Gascoigne were coming to end, it, he, he knew what he want, where he wanted to be on pitch, but his body will not allow him to do it, would it? To... Absolutely. And that's what happened with David Hay, as well as the injuries. And my, my mate Ben Doughty said to um, Eddie Hearn in the garden, he said, Eddie, you got the rematch. This was after the first Bellew and David Hay. This was shameless matchmaking. And my mate said, Eddie, he says, my friend, my mate Julian McGowan says, David Hay shot to shit. And Tony Bellew was going to knock him out again. No messing at all. And Eddie Hearn says, no, 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 no. He's, he's not shot to shit. You know, he he's, might not be the fighter that he used to be, Ben, but he's, he's still a good fighter. He's still a good fight. Now, I thought that the Bellew... Hey, rematch. I thought it was a, a massacre. I said, you just got a guy who can't even go through a training camp. And I'm talking about the health of boxers now. So you've got you've got David Hay, who couldn't even go through a training camp without his body falling to pieces. And he was absolutely shot to shit the first time he fought Bellew. And the second time he was gone. So listen, did Eddie care? Was it still pay-per-view? Of course it was. Because David Hay's a caricature. David Hay's a big name. Who, you know... I'm not a lover of David Hay, but who cares about David Hay's health? Nobody cares. That they, they, they get these fighters out there who are big names and they drag them out. They're not even having full full training camps. It wouldn't be surprised surprise me when Hay fought um, Bellew the second time if he'd hardly sparred, if he'd hardly done any resistance work because his body was absolutely shot. He didn't have weight to make, did he? Nothing. He was just. It was just nothing to do. He was just gone. You know. He always looks reasonable, and, and that's just the, the signs of a shot fighter. When fighters shot, you know, like you said, they have to think about it. It's not instinctive. They have to push the punches, and the feet and the dexterity and the coordination and the rhythms completely gone. And you've been able to see this now. So whilst Derek Chisora has never been graceful in terms of his style, he did have a rhythm to his work. You know, in the early days. He had a rhythm to his work. He's got no rhythm to his work now, and he's got no recovery from getting hit. It, it takes rounds and rounds and rounds to recover. And 
I'm amazed he gets his scans come back clean um, from the board. And I'll be amazed, and I, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to Derek Chisora, he's a brave fighting man, he, he really is. But people need to be having conversations. People should have been having conversations with Chisora three or four years ago. And even if that fighter says, listen, I did the same with Gary Sykes. I stepped away from Sykes. I says, Gary, it's no longer there. I'm not, I'm not going to be involved. I'm done. But people get paid for this, don't they? People get paid for training Derek Chisora, managing, promoting Derek Chisora. But they should be having these conversations four or five years before now. And the one thing I will guarantee you is when Derek Chisora is struggling in later life, and he will, because every fight's a war. The, the signs are there. The signs, there's no reaction now. There's no balance there now. There's no, there's no nothing there now. There's just a massive heart and a physical, he's a physical, strong man. But there's nothing else. And Derek Chisora is going to struggle later on in life. And if, if he does, and I hope he doesn't, I hope I'm wrong. You look at Riddick Bo now. If Derek Chisora struggles later on in life, let's see who's looking after Derek Chisora. Let's see who gives a fuck about Derek Chisora later on in life. Well, His phone will never ring, mate. It's yeah. cool. Riddick Bowe's a 43 and one guy who were uh, undisputed heavyweight champion, Olympic silver medalist. He only had one defeat, right? But he beat everybody he fought, Riddick Bowe. And he didn't have the punishment Chisora's took. He's had 12 defeats. And he's had, yes, and he's do you know had... what Tyson Fury did to him in that second one? He was in a bad way for about six weeks after that, Derek Chisora. He, people forget about things like this. People were saying brutal. he might not fight again after that, what Tyson did to him. He made a great mess of him. Yeah, Tyson just took away his soul, didn't he? He boxed southpaw the whole fight, and it was just cruel and one-sided. And like he got fury looking at um, he got fury looking at the referee. And you also had last night, there was a moment, I might get the round wrong, but there was a moment Parker. last night. Parker were looking at referee. Parker glanced at the referee. It might have been the seventh round or eighth round. And it was almost like what are you what are you doing? What, what, are you not going to say? Yeah, got the killer instinct that park, you know. I noticed a few times last night he didn't go in to finish Chisora off. It was like he didn't want to hurt, hurt him, wasn't it? He, he had him on hook a few times and he didn't move him for kill, did he? And I've seen that with him a few stepped times. Off. He's got a problem with that him. Yeah, he, he stepped he stepped off, didn't he? Um I don't know if I don't know if he doesn't have the killer instinct or if he's concerned about the the, the gas in the tank, you know, like when Joshua blows out and it takes four rounds to recover. I don't know, but the, the one thing I will say last night, because I don't want to come across as just critical, it was interesting, the contrast between both corners. Um, I thought Andy Lee was so calm and so good during the rounds. I mean, he had less of a problem than Caldwell had to deal with because obviously... Derek can't be the, the easiest person to coach and he's setting his ways. But you could see, you know, we talk about coaches influencing earlier on and I was talking about percentages. Andy Lee, he learned from the first fight. There was nothing, no changes at all from Chisora in the first fight. But Andy Lee was really, really clever. And it was punching under the, under the vision, under the eye line. You know, he was doing those perfect things that coaches look for. When he had that distance between him, he'd backed him in the corner. He'd touch him. He'd come over the top with the right hand. When they were ring center and Chisora started to walk him down, he would drop and he would come under with the right uppercut, left up combination. And you could hear Andy Lee calling those um, those shots out and calling the, that those moves out. And I thought that was really really good. And there was also a good coaching 
point in there, what I always said to my fighters, at one point, Andy Lee looked at Parker, he might have been after the fifth or sixth round, and said, remember, when you feel the ropes on the back, he says, you always come under and come out. He says, you never go back with the chin in the air. And it was really nice that it was reminding him what I've always said, when you get to the ropes, you make yourself small. Doesn't matter who you are, you make yourself small and you roll out and spin off. And I just thought it was, uh, it was quite brilliant in the corner was Andy Lee last night. I thought the way he spoke to him, the way he encouraged him, the way it was really simple in terms of breaking down the punches. I thought it was fantastic actually. And some of those little coaching points from Andy Lee were, were great. Um, Dave Caldwell, on the other hand, and Dave, I've met you several times. He's lost his cold, didn't he? he? was screaming and losing He was his... screaming all the way through. You could hear between the action. He was just scream, 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 scream. You know, it was, you've got to keep it simple. And that's what Andy Lee did. You always have to, the general rule of thumb in a corner with a fighter is you don't scream every single shot for him to throw because you might as well tell the opponent what you're doing. You might have little clues. You might have little things you've worked on. Now, at one point, Dave Caldwell said, he said, you got to keep, stop sticking your chin up. You don't lift your head up. And I actually disagreed with that. I would say the opposite thing. The fact that he was getting nailed every single time was because his chin was down. He was looking at the floor. He was rolling blindly. You know, generally the rule, rule is you, you're rolling shots and you're still looking at the eye line and you look through the gloves and you roll the shots. Whereas Chisora was just rolling and dipping and it was looking at, it was almost like looking at Parker's knees. And I thought, you're not even seeing these uppercuts come. So if anything, you might want to lift the chin up a little bit more so your peripheral vision's better. So I just thought there was definitely stronger coaching in one corner than the other. But to, to, to caveat that and to be fair to Dave, he's dealing with somebody who's died in the wall. There's not a lot of development, which I did say to you on the first video, didn't I? You, you asked me point blank, will Dave Caldwell bring any improvements to Derek Chisora? And I said to you in the first video we did, I said, absolutely not. And that was proven to be the case. There was, there was no improvement there, but you can't continually scream at a fighter. You just, you've got to, the general rule, as I was going to say, is you tell them one thing that they're doing well, so they continue to do it. And then you tell them one thing, that needs improvement, so they stop doing it. It's, but you just scream at a guy all the way through, you're not going to get the results. Do you feel that Dave Caldwell's made a living out of being Eddie Earn's mate more than on ability as a trainer? Because he's not had a British champion from debut yet, has he? It, it's always a difficult one for me. I can only talk about the coaches when I go into big detail that I've seen work with fighters and the development. Um, he's certainly benefited from a good relationship with um, Eddie Hearn. We, we can't deny that. There's, there's four or five trainers who have done exactly the same thing. And just like the MTK, the MT, MTK have four or five trainers who are the favourite trainers who work with MTK. And it's if you're in that camp, you'll get looked after. And as I was saying on the members area last night, what, what I look for is I'm looking for if I'm not going to get a, a technical improvement from a boxer from the first fight, I'm at least looking for a strategic improvement. I'm looking for the fighter to do something differently. And Joseph Parker did things differently. Derek Chisora didn't do anything differently whatsoever. Um, there were just certain things that, like 
Coldwell kept saying jab to the chest, jab, 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 jab to his chest, jab to his chest, jab to his chest. I'm thinking that's half the problem. You jab to a guy's chest who's taller than you, okay? You've got a massive target for an overhand right coming down there. You jab to a guy's chest continually. All he's going to do is just going to touch you. He's going to step, step to the side and throw the right uppercut. It's actually quite dangerous when you've got fighters doing these multiple jabs. I know that um, the Mayweather coaches, they teach multiple jabs at the end of a combination. So you might, you might throw one, two, three, four, and then touch, 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 and pivot off. But the Mayweather's do the multiple jabs, not as an inroad, as an entry. They do it as an exit. So basically, if you, if you jab constantly to the chin... To get out safely. To get out safely and block the right hand. You either block the right hand by rolling under and pivoting, or you block a right hand by touch, 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 jab to the chin. You're blocking that shot coming across. When, you, when you're jabbing a chest of a taller guy, that's, that's dangerous stuff to be saying to a fighter, in my opinion. Do you think that Caldwell's probably thinking that Derek's a bit taller than what he is and longer arms are smart? <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was such a dangerous thing. You know, whenever I watch a, a fight, I always like to draw parallels with previous fights. So, so Chisora has that almost like that cross-arm Kenny Norton style of, of defence. Now, that cross-arm Kenny Norton style of defence it might work against the guy who's throwing straight shots like Ali. He caused Ali all kinds of problems because the cross arm, he was rolling, he was dipping, and he's blocking a lot of the straight shots coming your way. But when you have that cross arm defence against a guy who throws uppercuts and hooks, it doesn't always work. It's a really dangerous thing to do. So I think of Kenny Norton and in two instances where he got brutally knocked out against Ernie Shavers and George Foreman. It was an absolute sucker for uppercuts because of that cross-arm defence. There's very little to stop those shots coming through. So I just saw last night, I was thinking, I was watching Chisora in the first minute of that fight with that cross-arm defence, and I thought, I'm pretty sure that Andy Lee will now be really bringing that right uppercut in as a constant punch, and that's exactly what he did. So that's a coach who's really understood what he's up against the second time. He's made adjustments, and... Uh, other than Michael Alexander's card, he's made a, he's made a, a hard fight a little bit easier. You feel that Andy Lee's fight and Parker should have got him out there a bit earlier? Yeah, I think he, he, he should have really put on an explosive performance. And to your point, I don't know why he's not done that. Because you, you can see the referee is looking for an excuse to stop that fight. And when, you, when a referee's hovering and he's only looking at one fighter... That's a signal to the guy who's throwing the shots to say, guess what? He only wants three or four more big shots from you and he's going to jump in and stop that fight. And he would do that and then he would reset. And it's like Joshua Boazzi said last night, he totally misread the situation. Every time Chisora got hurt, he said, listen, it's really clever what Chisora's doing. He's, he's backing into the corner because he's looking for the counter and it's really clever he's making Parker go to him. No, he's not. He's backing into the corner, Joshua, because he can't walk, because his feet weren't under him from the third round. That's why he's in the corner, just like David Hare was in the corner and against the ropes against Belly, because his legs weren't... He couldn't fucking move. It's as simple as that. And that's where Parker really should have let his shots go. A little bit like Larry Holmes when he had Marvis Fraser in the corner and it was just bang, 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 and he was throwing long right hands 
And that's what Parker needed. And I sometimes think you need a real dynamic flagship performance to put your name back out there. Just beating Derek Chisora on points. Well, a lot of people have done that, haven't they? So it's, I don't know what it's going to get him in by way of a big fight. But it was definitely an improved performance from Parker. And Chisora has gone so far back now, he, he needs to call it a day. What day do you what sorry, what round do you think Caldwell should have pulled fire? I think after the seventh, me personally. Yeah, after after the seventh, my view is always obviously you know your fighter and how well Dave knows Chisora. I don't know, he's known him a long time, but he hasn't worked with him five, six, seven, eight years to truly know his fighter. So that's always that's always a point when you think about stopping a fight. How well do I know my fighter? But for me, one of the key things is if your fighter's been down a couple of times, he's not shown in that, he didn't show in that fight that it was going to turn that fight around. The only question mark was, would he get stopped or not? And that depended on, on Parker's punch output and Parker's, you know, stamina reserves. He, he got tired a few times with Parker. He was a little bit circumspect. But for me, after round seven, I would have said, you're way down on the cards. It's not there. I can see it's not there. The, the eyes were gone. The eyes were completely gone. They were vacant. And I'm, I might have pulled him, um, but I will I will defend Dave and say sometimes when you're right in the corner, it's a little bit different to what it is watching on, on television. But there was nothing to suggest that Chisora was going to win that fight. But I guess also, Russell, had he been pulled out, he really would have been so so difficult to market again, wouldn't he? And I guess they'll still be shameless and they'll still try and market him. They'll still put him in another fight. What would you say if to any trainer that takes Chisora on again now, would you say the mercenaries? Well, I wouldn't take him on. Um, people say, oh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take him on because you can't do anything with him. You, you, there's nothing you can do with him. He's died in the wool. What worked for him worked for him when he was younger. It no longer works for him. There's, there's no defence. There's absolutely no defence there whatsoever. The punch resistance is going. It's going. You know, the, there were big shots what put him over, but the resistance is going. The recovery is gone. Um, he must have made so much money. Chisora must have a lot of cash. And it's never for me to tell a fighter when to, to, to finish, but I wouldn't work with him. But I'll tell you something, there'll be a hundred fighters who will. hundred trainers, you mean? hundred trainers who will work with him, there'll be a hundred managers, hundred promoters. People aren't bothered. He's a name, isn't he? He's a, he's a name, just like people who talked about Riddick Bo earlier. Riddick Bo ended up getting his legs kicked to shit, didn't he, on some kind of Thai boxing show when he was in his 50s. People don't care. Promoters, Michael Nunn was released from prison last year. The first thing they did with Michael Nunn was he had a, he had a fight. He's a 50-odd-year-old against um, an ex-MMA fighter that people don't give a toss. If, if Derek Chisora can't, can no longer sell out a matchroom show, they might drop him down a level. There might be another promotion who can sell him until eventually you end up like, I'm sure this won't be the case, but it's like Primo Carnera. You know, he ended up wrestling, didn't he? Wrestling promoters were using his name because he was so gone and so shot and so needed the money that people... This is blood sport, ultimately. I've, you know, I've been in boxing for a long time. This is blood sport. People don't care. People genuinely, some people do, but generally people don't care about Derek Chisora, apart from Derek Chisora's family. Um, mm. Because if you cared about him, 
you'd be having that conversation with him four years ago, wouldn't you? You think that could be the last burger that he ever eats with his opponent after the fight again? <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows? Um, it's it's a it's a funny sport that we're in, mate, isn't it? It's a funny sport we're in, and uh, I don't I don't think we've seen the end of him. We'll... What about uh, the punditry on the night? The Darren Barker was screaming, "Come on, Chisora! Come on, Chisora!" He's a pundit. Bellew was screaming for his guy as well. Um, Barker was doing his dark microphone. And oh, well, the other guy who said that Derek Chisora reminds him of Joe Fraser, it Chris. Oh, Blatty. Yeah, Joshua Blatty said it. Joshua Blatty said he's, he reminds me of Joe Fraser. He's um, he's not getting hit full with those shots. He's kind of glad the, the shots are glancing. But uh, mm. isn't Boatsy managed by 258? And Derek's now signed with them, hasn't he? So it were all in-house, wasn't it? We had Bellew, he, yeah. he's a pundit on his mate Chisora and his former trainer Caldwell. We've got Boatsy, he's a pundit, he's a 258 fighter. Chisora's a 258 fighter, a.k.a. Joe Smoking Joe Fraser. <laughs> he couldn't make it up. Didn't anybody learn anything from Chisora fighting Usek when there were all that palaver with Coldwell and Bellew ringside screaming like banshees, you know, uh, for and saying Derek definitely won on their cards and all this and blah blah. blah. Didn't anybody learn anything from a match from that? You can't. I mean, that was punditing on your mates. Sky seem to have learned, don't they? Sky seem to have become a little bit less giddy and a little bit more neutral now, which is which is nice to see. But Matchroom have gone the opposite way, haven't they? It's it's awful. It's it's absolutely fat. It's the jobs for the boys. It's fanboys, and yeah, when you've got Barker, I mean, listen, it was Christmas and it might have been a bit of fun, but I, I said to you earlier on in the week when when we had the weighing and we had Barker he dressed and up mate, as elves, him and his mate dressed up as elves. There was times they were looking at Eddie Hearn like little, little schoolboys, like doughy-eyed, like Eddie or our hero. And there was this moment where Eddie had done the interview and Darren Barker just patted him on the shoulder like that and, and Eddie walked off and I thought, it was just awful. I'm like, you're a former world champion. You're a fantastic amateur and a fantastic fighter. You're a former world champion and you're looking at this, your boss like a puppy. Come on, come on now. Have a Stand up and be a little bit of a man and... And it's like the commentary. We want the commentary to be brave, don't we? Say it as it's happening. You know, the, what I would, the first thing I would have done as a commentator after six rounds, when they said it was, in terms of power punches landed, it was 69 to Parker, 59 to Chisora. The first thing I would have said as a commentator is, what 59 punches? I mean, is it, is it Eddie Hearn's mate now who's doing the punch stats? Has that now been corrupted to the point? Because... If there was only 10 punches difference landed between Parker and Chisora after six rounds, then I must have been watching a completely different fight last night. So not only do we get the usual horrendous scorecard, and that's something we could, we should call out every week now, you know, the bad officials, bad scoring, horrendous. We actually I have the punch. That computer the, punch that, screen. the punch stats are showing Chisora to be out-throwing Parker and almost similar type of accuracy and landing. And I'm thinking, what is it? What is he landing? He landed a few solid jabs in one round in particular. Where, where, who's doing these punch stats? And is it the same people 
who couldn't score couldn't score in a brothel. It's like you, what are you what are you doing? It's just it was awful. Um, Boazzi was cheering for his mate. You're right. Uh, Darren Barker was. I mean, it was almost climaxing, wasn't it? To it sounds really bad, but I'm like, wow, wow, this is awful. And Costello's. I thought he might he's, be a good He's better off radio, Costello. He's fell in love with himself all of a sudden, hasn't he? Yeah, he, he totally has. He, he's, he's gone right to the top now, hasn't he? And he still sounds like a radio commentator when he describes the action too much. I'm like, this is television. You, you need to grow out of that because when you're commentating on the radio, we can't see it. We can't see he's got red shorts on. But when, you, when, you, when you're commentating every single shot, we can see it. You don't need to call out every single shot. But... The commentary should be calling out the punch stats and at least make an acknowledgement by saying, well, that's surprising. I would have thought Parker was, you know, way ahead in terms of punches landed. They need to be calling out, I mean, the scorecard at the end, I'm not sure what to say about. Um, Michael, Michael Alexander. I don't know what to say about that one. Um, Michael Alexander's be, a blind man. I can't, I can't ever get my head around that scorecard. It's like, Every single fight, every single big show, there's a horror of a scorecard. So, Michael Alexander, this week it's you. You've put out an absolute horrific scorecard, which effectively means you gave Derek Chisora more rounds in that fight than Joseph Parker. Because if you take away the 10-8 rounds, then, you know, there was you give a 114-112 scorecard. So if you take away the swing of the six-point deficit, you've got Derek Chisora winning more rounds than Joseph Parker. Now, I have no idea what you're watching. I've, I've just got no idea where your mind was at when you were watching that fight. And people can say, well, you know, judges make mistakes. Judges always seem to make mistakes when it's the house fight, don't they? When it's the promoter's fight. They never make the mistakes the opposite way around. Now, that scorecard was... Absolutely disgraceful. So that means if if there's no free knockdowns, Chisora beats Parker on Michael Alexander's card. Yep. What will Robert Smith do about that, do you think? Probably the same as he's done about everything else. Um, you'll, you'll get the... Well, Steve Gray's been called in front of the board. Howard Foster's been called in front of the board and... Blah 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 blah. You, you get you get this. What Harry O'Connor? Yeah, and this is what we're saying when we did the Sykes video to be called in front of the board. If they didn't call anybody in front of the board, when they get these meetings, you know, the the central area and the southern area, and when all these councils come together for coffee and an afternoon tea, um, if they didn't call people in front of the board, they'd have nothing to talk about, really, would they? No. So it's like I'd love to hear the conversation because you know. My com my conversation will be okay. We we, we called you here, um, Michael Alexander, because of you, we want you to justify your scorecard. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to score this now round by round. We want you to go through every round and, and talk to me, talk to me about how you gave that round. You know, pick one, pick one round out in particular that was a really clear round for Joseph Parker, and ask Alexander and say, can you explain? how you got to this scorecard, because we need to understand, we need, do we need to do some retraining? Do we need to drop you down and just give you a 12 month suspension from judging? Do we need to put you back out there as a trial referee? Do we need, you know, like at work, people get demoted sometimes before they get dismissed. 
we need to understand how you're interpreting these rounds because do you know what? You only have to get one bad round, two bad rounds, and then you're robbing somebody. You, somebody's titles are changing hands and various things. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if they're trying to win favour with the promoter. I don't know if they're genuinely just a shit judge. He's a better referee than he's a judge. I, I, don't, I don't know. But what I do know is there might have been about two or three rounds in that fight that Chisora won based on Parker taking rounds off effectively. But there was no more than three rounds in that fight that... that I gave him two won. rounds. Uh, yeah, I, I was similar. I think I had it 117, 110 or something, I forget. But I, I didn't I have it 7-5 though, mate. I didn't have it seven rounds to five in, in scorecards. No, it was a it was a one-sided fight, wasn't it? Um, you know, it, some fights are not that difficult to score, and I didn't think that was difficult to score. I said we had three rounds where he didn't do a lot of work, Parker. So Chisora might have won those on attrition, but everything else was quite clear. It's like the eleventh and twelfth rounds. I don't know how Alexander scored those rounds, but they were really good casing points where Chisora was just moving, he was shuffling, he was swinging, he wasn't landing anything. And Parker might have only landed seven or eight shots in that 12th round, for example. They were big shots. They were clean, nasty uppercuts, big right hands. Why are you not, why are you not scoring these rounds as, they, as they're actually happening? It's, it's a big worry for me. And I also think it's a worry when... I always thought for fights, when you had three judges and you had an international opponent and then a home opponent, I always thought... You had to have a neutral judge, an English judge, and a, a New Zealand a judge from New Zealand. Why are we getting? Why are we always getting three English judges every single time? Who? Who? That's what that? boys, isn't it? They've got to earn, aren't they? These these judges. It, it, it's it, it's it's dreadful. It, it's it's dreadful. And it, what happens is, as long as they get the right winner, these horrendous scorecards just get forgotten about. They shouldn't be forgotten about. They need to be. Reviewed well, you've got to look at it like this, right? With these bad scorecards, how is he getting 114, 112 Parker? What are you giving Chisora rounds at the beginning and he's tried to make it up at end and hope that they have a grandstand finish? Because yeah. that's what I think is going on. There's got to, it's got to be. Otherwise, what we need is that the viewers at home need to see what these judges' cards are at the end of every round. And then we can see what's going on with that. And then it can red flag. And then somebody could go up to the judge and see what you're fucking doing, scoring that like that. That exactly. round needs scrutinising. Well, what rewatch that round at the end of the fight. And yeah. then all the fans have got to wait then, maybe 15 minutes extra. Absolutely. And then, and then it can all be done correctly. Let's go, let's review it. Check the cards and say, right, we've had experts in the studio. They know what they've got it as, but let's look at your cards, the judges. Have you got that round there? Have you scored that to him? Well, show me how you've done it. They won't show you how they've done that, will they? They won't. Like no. a mechanic, you got a problem with your car. Well, show me how you've done that. Oh, well, I do it like this. No, that's, not, that's how you do it. These people are not showing us how they've come to that score. How? How the fuck has Iggy Derek Chisora, 112 points, been dropped three times and won three rounds? It was never in the fight. It, be, it comes a point, doesn't it? It's not subjective. You know, people say, oh, I think it's subjective. The rule book, the, the rules of scoring fights in the US in the 
70s, 80s, it was slightly different. There were four criteria, but the, the overriding score scoring of a fight is clean punches landed. And that's clean, effective punches landed. They've got to land with a reasonable force. They've got to land clean on the target area, not on the back of the head, not on the arm, not on the you know, on the back of the neck. They've got to be clean punches landed. And it that's the overriding... on 10 on it, really. What would... Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it, was a wide, it was a wide score. Wide win, wide, wide win, man. And we got, like I say, we got 114, 112. So that scorecard tells me if he gave 114 to Joseph Parker, then he had Joseph Parker not getting 10 points in six rounds. So in six rounds, he had Parker losing six rounds. And I did a bit of the maths. I think he probably scored it 6-4 with two even. Across so the he, lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. So in, yeah, in terms of pure rounds, one. So he had, he had Chisora... Winning. He's giving the close rounds to, he's giving Chisora rounds that he shouldn't have been getting in, basically. Yeah, every, every single one. And you only have to have, you know, one or two swing rounds, and he's giving that fight to Chisora. It's, he's, they he's get off scot free, and then next week they're in Wembley Arena, earning X amount again. Free fucking yeah. gratis. He needs looking at, and as I've said before, so Michael Alexander, you know, Howard Foster, all these guys, I'm a licensed holder. It's not a case of calling you out for calling you out's sake. It's a case of, listen, this already is not a level playing field. We all understand boxing is not a level playing field. But inside the ropes, it should be level. It should start at zero. You know, that's how boxing should be run. Now, if you're putting poor scoring in week after week after week after week, you need to be held accountable to that. You know, we all, if you go for a meal, listen, this is maybe a stretched example. If you go out for a meal and you spend 100 quid, 150 quid, and you start as cold and you get the, you get the wrong order for your main, you put, your pudding doesn't turn up or, or whatever, the, the, the beer's off. What happens was you complain, you get, you get a return or you get something knocked off your bill. And then the manager goes back into the kitchen and has a word with the chef. So hang on, what's going on here? It's fucking cold. What, what are you doing here? And it's not good, is it? It's not good for business. But in any other industry, poor performance is not acceptable. I won't drop my standards at work and I won't drop my standards, you know, how I bring my kids up and all those kind of things. But in boxing, poor performance, oh, nobody, nobody cares. No one cares and you see the same judges the same coaches the same boxers time round after week after week after week after week after week and it's not good enough your scorecard was wrong and i think i think you need you need some retraining as far as i'm concerned just like all the just like the judge who scored against the kid who campbell hatton boxed the time before last just like the ebony bridges last fight which helps you lucky if she won around you need calling up and you need some retraining or you need uh, you need to drop down, drop down a level for a couple of years. You need to retrain. Like that, I forgot her name now, the black woman who, who married uh, that referee. She's a judge as well. Not CJ Ross, the other one. The American I, one. She's she's given some bad ones, hasn't she? CJ oh, Ross is, gave bad ones. Some shocking ones. The Golden Boy, always in favour of Golden yes. Boy fighters. <laughs> I always think um, I forget the name, but was it the um, the fifth round of the Evander Holyfield Lennox Lewis 
the first fight in which was a draw, which obviously there was no way Lewis didn't win that fight. And I think it was the fifth round. It could have been a 10-8 round to Lewis. He'd really dominated Holyfield and it hurt him. And it might have been Eugenia Williams who gave the round to Holyfield. I remember that was one of the biggest outcries because it affected the scoring of the fight and it ended up being a draw. And if any, if ever was a clear round for Lennox Lewis in the first fight with Holyfield, it was a fifth round. And I believe that the lady, I think it was Eugenia Williams who gave that round to Holyfield, which was staggering. I think she was still judging afterwards, you know. it's And they, this is where we're at, isn't it? Do we not have judges coming through? Or do we just like to keep the old, uh, the old team together, the old boys together, and keep every, keep everybody earning? Um, it's such a shame because we we always say this, but boxing can be such a beautiful sport, can't it? It can be such a thrilling, you know, the Cambosis Lopez fight the other week. It was just off the scale. It was just just a brilliant fight, you know. And unfortunately, you just you just get this rubbish and it just leaves a sour taste, but you can still see great boxing. Go to, you know, if, if you get disillusioned with pro boxing, go support your local amateurs, go to the local amateur shows, um, go to the local amateur championships. You can still see great boxing. It's just such a shame that every main event now is marred by either a bad stoppage, a poor fight, or really poor officiating and poor judging. And we got, we got that last night with Michael Alexander. Yeah, it were uh, poor from Michael Alexander. Oh, well, the two judges, they were poor as well, or were they? Yeah, they were too close. I can't remember them, but they they only had it like, what, two, three rounds. They, they were all, all the scorecards were all too close. And even had there not been 10, eight rounds, you know, Parker won the majority of those rounds, just cleaner work all the way through. And the, and the 10, eight rounds just gave a massive exclamation mark for me on that fight. So... I don't know if they were asleep at the wheel or like you've just said, uh, any any round what's even reasonably close. And I didn't see that many reasonably close rounds, by the way. I thought there were a lot of clear rounds for Parker. But it's almost like any rounds that are reasonably close, they just give the benefit to the home fire. I like to think it's... Well, you've got two two options to look at. When, when a fight's really clear to us, yeah, we watch a fight and it's very clear that Joseph Parker won that fight clearly then there's only two possible possible reasons for a scorecard such as that. And you say it's either corruption or it's incompetence. Now, yeah. what, what, what other reason can... You can't say, oh, it was a close round, it was a close fight. It wasn't a close fight. It could have gone fight. either way. I could see it going yeah. either way, but, you know, all that bollocks. There's an argument for, you know, three rounds in, four rounds for Parker. No, there's no argument. He won that fight, clearly. So... I'd like to think it's not corruption. And Adelaide Bird, that. that woman's name. Bird, that's the one. She oh, married God Robert Bird, and she that's did an it. interview. Yeah, the, uh, they both had obviously jobs in in day, but yeah. they they they've made they've got property empire. And they're worth millions, aren't they? Them two. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying yeah. it's from backhanders and Vegas and Nevada State Commission or anything like that. But they've managed to retire from the jobs and the, the judges. She's a judge, he's a ref judge, and all that. They're doing very well. They've made, they? they've made millions out of the sport of boxing. And he's incompetent. He's shockingly incompetent. Him. Terrible. Terrible. And uh she she is she's off the charts. Uh, 
she she were proper up. She were always a golden boy judge on the night. And yeah, that's right. That's right. Ends with Delaroy family and all that. And she right. and the other oh the other woman, the blonde. I think that was CJ Ross, wasn't it? Did right, she yeah. give Mayweather Canelo as a draw? 114-114, wasn't it? That, that was that was probably one of the worst cards I've ever seen. I will just quickly say, Michael Alexander, I'm not saying you're corrupt. I'm saying you're incompetent, by the way, just for clarity. Um, you had a bad night last night. Yeah, some of the scorecards we've seen over the years, it's um, I'm always drawn back to the um, Pernod Whitaker, Jose Luis Ramirez fight. Oh, the one in France. Oh, that's a, it's, it's got to be the worst decision I've ever seen in in professional boxing. I mean, that was a that was a horror, wasn't it? That was just like that that boy was robbed from his first world title fight. Obviously, put that right, became a legend. But this stuff this stuff happens, and we used to call Germany, didn't we? We've become the Germany of Europe and now, Italy. haven't we? In terms of yeah, yeah, and the, oh, Italy. Yeah, I remember those. Kirk and Lang getting job doing Italy and other fighters there, but we we used to call those and say, "Oh, you got to knock them out to get a draw in Germany and Italy." But we we've become for a long, long time now. I think there's some bad Ricky Burns decisions in the early days. We we've become the Germany and Italy of Europe, and there's only one reason fighters come over here, and that's for the platform, the cash, because you wouldn't come over here for a fair shake, would you? Hey, Beltran against Ricky Burns was a shocker, wasn't it? That that was the one. That yeah, that was. That was just awful. Um, you, you, you see some horrific ones, don't you? And you just think that. You Mark just can't get your head around it. against Monet, that was a bad one. Martin that, that was against a... Martinez. Yeah. Oh, I, I always remember the, the probably the worst one I've seen abroad. Robin Reed, Sven Ocker. Rob, Robin Reed, Sven Ocker. And didn't he drop at one point, Ocker, and he got... A point and taken off. Ocker got up and they took a point off Robin, didn't yeah. they? Because said he was Yeah, they took a point off. off. Yeah, the Duke of Bay. It was a 10-8 round for Ocker, wasn't it? And it made difference yeah. that night, didn't it? It was, yeah. They, they penalised him for knocking Ocker down, didn't they? And I'm, I just remember, just fucking hell. It's like, you've got to laugh because it's that shit, isn't it? And this is... That was Sowland. Was... That, that was Sowland. You know the worst one I've ever seen? You started me off now, mate. Yeah, bad The worst one I've ever seen. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Arthur Abraham against Edison Miranda, where they took five points off Miranda every time he punched Abraham on his broken jaw because he stopped the fight Randy Newman didn't he people need to go and watch Arthur Abraham versus Edison Miranda won in Germany and let me know what you think about that fight like I said they took five points off Edison Miranda in the fight he should have been disqualified after two normally took five points right and he he battered Abraham for 12 rounds because he broke his jaw early he battered him for 12 rounds and he lost on points, right? Such a, it was so bad that even if they hadn't took the five points off him for punching Abraham on his broken jaw, which is allowed, jaw, yeah. he would have still lost anyway. So the points took off. It didn't make any much difference anyway. It was a landslide. Look, that's when the, I'm sure if it, there were a big investigation into the IBF or the WBA yeah. or what, there was a big investigation and I went to boxing in Germany and blah de blah and all that. The one after Ock and Robin Reed, he didn't last much longer after that Ock, did he? There were all sorts no, of didn't. problems. American TV didn't want to know whether they're or not. They were all sorts. Disgraceful. Yeah, it, well, it doesn't kill the sport. Yeah, it kills the sport, and that's what happens, doesn't it? It's, 
the one that always, you know, we talk about bad decisions and everybody is aware of this one, but the Roy Jones in the Seoul Olympics. Oh, the, the, bloody the hell. Part that's, the part that sticks out for me watching that, I remember watching Jones beat Richard Woodall. I thought, wow, this kid's amazing. The hand speed, never seen anything like it. And the worst bit for me was always, and the commentary, I think about it being Jim Neely at the time, when they were announcing the, the Roy Jones Olympic final when he got absolutely shafted, the officials were smiling and laughing. And I remember the commenters, the commenters, and they're laughing, they're, they're actually laughing. It was so corrupt, they knew what they'd done. And at what point would you not, what, what point as a boxer would you not give that gold medal to Roy Jones? I says, I can't live with this. This is your gold medal, come on. And make a mockery of the sport. And it's, that was just awful. And you get, they're always hometown decisions, aren't they? They're always hometown robberies. and. There are, like I've just said earlier, there's either incompetent judging or corrupt judging. And the Roy Jones was an example of just corrupt judging. It was, mm. it was just awful. Um, just like we never, we didn't think Joshua won the Olympic gold, did we? We thought he got beat in his first He only fight. beat the China man out of the four fights. Yeah. And, and he was useless just, anyway. I just think there's something in, yeah, absolutely. There's something inside you, isn't there? What you wouldn't want to win within those rules, would you? Um, you know, I always remember once um, I boxed in uh, Red, it was either Redker or Sunderland, I can't remember, there was three or four of us boxing from home champions. My dad was there, God bless him. And a lad called, a really good amateur of ours, called James Brown, he was an NABC champion, um, big, tall, black guy, handsome guy, beautifully gifted boxer. And James Brown boxed, and we all, I'd lost on a majority in on the home, the, the other kid's home show. Another kid called Jonathan Lane had lost on a majority, and he'd given the other kid two standing counts. And then we had another lad called Gavin, I forget his surname, and he'd lost on a majority. And Mark Tate was just shaking his head and was like, this is just the worst night of boxing and scoring I've ever seen. So our lad, James Brown, boxed. And... The kid he was fighting wasn't that great, and there'd been a kind of agreement to make the match because it was the main main event. There'd been an agreement that James wouldn't batter him too much. The kid might have a 50-50 record. Like I said, James was a national champion. Um, and James put it on this kid, and he just jabbed him silly for the first round. And then the second round, he dropped this kid. He was almost propping him up. It was so one-sided, and it wasn't the, other, the other guy was brave. He was almost propping him up. Absolute true story. Third round, James gave him a standing count. Bust his nose, smashed his kid to bits. And we saw, well, that's the job done. And they gave it to the other kid. And even the home crowd, there was a riot. They actually started rioting. And one of the judges got punched. My dad saw that. He said, one of the judges got cracked. Tables got thrown over. And even the home crowd in, might have been Sunderland, were so disgusted at their own fight getting that decision. All hell broke loose, and we got out of the way. We went in the dressing room, and then afterwards, the kid came in back to the Roy Jones thing. The kid came in with his trophy. James was distraught, was really upset. And the kid came in and gave James his trophy. He says, You gotta take this. He says, I didn't win that fight. And I thought it was just such a nice, you know, it's a small story, but it's such a, a nice show, you know, show of sportsmanship. And it's like, that'd be me, that I'd just be like so honest and say, My fighter didn't win that. Um, I apologise, you know, we need to look at this scoring. But the shameless, aren't they? The shameless. Talking to get about the scoring like this, like you just said there, since, well, Robin Reed's Sven Ocker, that was 20-odd years ago. 
We're still talking, well, 20 years ago, so we're still talking about it now, aren't we? Every week, Russell, there's a, there's a bad scorecard, even if it's not a bad decision. There's a bad scorecard every week. Was it the Gambosis um, fight a couple of weeks ago with Lopez? Gambosis clearly won that fight. And I think we still had a split decision, didn't we? And it's like, how, how, does, how does this happen? And boxing continues to, to brilliant, brilliant sport. And it continues to shoot itself in the foot. And like you always say, there needs to be a big clean out. There needs to be a big purge. Drain the swamp. Let's drain the swamp. Get it. Let's start again. Let's just have a level playing field because it might be entertainment. It might be, it might, people say boxing's business now. Boxing's always been business. It's People always use that line. It's always been about business, but ultimately it's still sport. And support's supposed to be a level playing field. We don't see that now. Um, and it, it, it is what it is. At least the right fighter got the win, but it doesn't make it right. Look at the look at the bands that Barry Hearn hands out to snooker players who step out the step over the line. Look at the no bands dishes out, but look at the people that he works with in boxing that have had bands. And and, and some of the rules that they're bending. So what's the difference between boxing and snooker? What's snooker? You're not getting punched in the head, are you? Exactly. It's just like you've said, it's it's about bringing the sport into disrepute, but you know. Canelo Alvarez, love him or hate him, he's a proven drugs cheat. That's not always a popular thing. When I say that, I get attacked for saying it. Canelo Alvarez... He's a, a cheating little ginger cunt. That's what he is, is mate. He's a, pro he's a proven drugs cheat. Um, we have lots of proven drugs cheats in this country, overseas, and Canelo Alvarez's punishment for being a proven drugs cheat, he only fights once every six months anyway. He just he missed one fight. And then he went on to sign, I know it got revised, but he went on to sign one of the biggest sports contracts ever, didn't he, for 360 million. That was his reward. So, so what does that say about the sport of boxing when the biggest star is a proven drugs cheat and it just got, it got whitewashed, really. It just got forgotten about. Yeah. And he, although he's a, I love watching his, he's a fantastic fighter. He's a brilliant fighter, but. Is a still a proven drugs cheat? Yeah. There's no is I mean, how much is he worth, Russell? He half never billion, half a billion. Well, he never he never contested that, did he? He never one second, mate. He never con he never contested that. Um we've got the dog here. One second, Jane. He, ne he never contested that this, you know, that um decision, did he? If I was clean and if it was horse meat and it was this and it was that then I would have turned around and said, oh, I'm appealing this, I've got the money, I'm going to take this to court. But he didn't. He took the ban and paid the fine because he was guilty. Simple as that, mate. Yeah. Okie dokie then. Well, listen, thanks for coming on, Julian. Anytime. Fantastic. Anytime. Uh, we'll, we'll have you on next week at some point, or week after. We'll see how it goes, yeah? Yep, thank you. So you have a good weekend, Russell. I will. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody, for watching, and thanks for the nice comments. And again, I never try to offend anybody. I just prefer now to just say it as it is, because we, we need to protect this beautiful sport, and we need to keep watching boxing. Thank you very much. You take care. You take care, mate. Have a good day. Well, Julian spoke very elegantly there. Very elegantly, in, indeed. And uh, you don't mean to offend anybody with what he said, but uh, so 
Well, for what I say on it, if I offend people, I don't give a fuck. All right? So take it on chin. All right? It's supposed to be big, tough people, aren't you? Take it on chin, all you big, tough boxing people, boxers, trainers, managers, promoters, hardcore fans. If you don't like it, it's just an opinion, isn't it? But I don't give two fucks. All right? Peace out. Oh, before I forget, Ken, Rico and Terry will be on in the next couple of days. And then that's your lot for December, I think, till Elmet's at year. So get your votes in pokycorner at mail.com. <laughs>